Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today on the show, how to protect yourself against tax identity theft. When you're dealing with information as sensitive as financial information and social security numbers, everything that you can possibly do to protect it, you should do, including, if possible, I'm getting in my car, I'm getting in a cab, I'm coming over, I'm giving you the information. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Uh, You know, it's the heart of tax season. And of course, you're getting busy starting the process. But what you need to know is this could be a particularly bad tax season when it comes to protecting your cybersecurity. And that is why we have snagged an expert on tax fraud We've got Adam Levin. He's the former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs, the co-founder of Credit.com, the co-founder and chairman of Cyber Scout. He's also the author of Swiped, How to Protect Yourself in a World of Scammers, Fishers, and Identity Thieves. You know, in light of the Equifax breach last year, it's going to be a bad, bad tax fraud season. So we have Adam here with us to help navigate this thorny time. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Adam Levin, welcome to Better Off. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Adam, we start the podcast with one question that's burning in my mind. You ready? I am totally ready. What is the best financial decision you ever made? The best financial decision I ever made is to actually allow a professional to manage my finances as opposed to self-managing. Is that right? When did you do that? Oh, a few years ago. And and the reason is that, that I was always a risk taker. And every time that I would feel that I was in the safe zone, I would literally do something to put myself in harm's way again subconsciously. And so one day I finally woke up and said, Why do you want to endure the pain? Because I think, as you know, having been in these markets for years, that there will be days that you have great wins and you will feel terrific for about one hour. But every other day when you don't have a great win, especially if you have a really bad day, you carry that with you for an awfully long period of time. Yeah, you sure do. Well, you're joining us today because you are an expert about identity theft and uh, all things identity related. And I want to understand what we need to know right now about tax filing season, because this could be a quite dicey tax season for lots of reasons. So what should we know? Well, first of all, let's start with the premise that scaring is caring. So (laughs) we just want everyone to know this is all about love coming Mm -hmm. to you right now. But the the truth is, you know, we're living in a post-Equifax world, and Equifax is just one of the horrible breaches that we faced. It happened to be a rather extensive one. But as a result, the Social Security information and pretty much everything else that one would need in order to masquerade as if they were you is out there, and it's out there in a big way. So you're particularly impacted during tax season because there is nothing more delicious to an identity thief than using your information to file a fraudulent return to grab a refund and disappear off into the wilderness and you're left holding the bag. This is uh, a scam that's been going on for a while. It's been escalating. How much money is lost? Like how much? How many dollars of fraudulent returns were filed in the last year? 
Well, it, estimates vary. At mm-hmm. one point, they projected it could be as much as $21 billion. Now, I think that number is, is significantly less than that, and the IRS is proud of the fact that they were able to stop a significant percentage of fraudulent returns uh, because of their filtering systems and their cooperative efforts now with states and tax uh, preparation organizations. But the truth is we're still talking about billions of dollars. Mm. And it's a double hit because not only is this money that went to the wrong people, but then the IRS has to make sure that the money goes to the right people. And we as taxpayers end up footing the bill for all the people. What happens is they file this fraudulent return. They've got your social. They've got your address. They file a return. But I don't understand. How do they get the money? The money goes where? They just say, send it to this account? Well, what they would do is they, they would give a fraudulent address to send the, the money, or they would or they would do a, a debit card or some other instrument that they would find that they could get the IRS to load it on. Now, the truth is, we know the IRS certainly isn't going to do iTunes cards, but when people are committing tax frauds against consumers, they will tell consumers in a moment of panic for the consumer... I want your money and I want you to put it on this iTunes card, which granted is curious and should be a tip off. Okay, but so there's one thing which is like the fraudsters have your information, they file a return, they capture the refund, the fraudulent refund, and they go away and they may or may not be caught. Then the next thing is where you have someone who's actually scamming you during tax season. That is correct. And that is a, a phone call or an email, right? You would get a phone call or an email. And, of course, the most important thing to remember is the IRS never initiates contact with a phone call, even though there are some debt collection companies now that are collecting for the IRS. Uh, they will never ask you to give them something over the telephone, and you always have the right to appeal. And you always make the check out to the United States Treasury, not to, for instance, IRS, which could be altered to look like MRS. And that has been the practice oh of a lot of these God. thieves. Oh, my God. That's amazing. That, that's the reason why they went to U.S. the United States Treasury is because that would stop people from altering checks to make it look like misses as opposed to IRS. So what do we need to know? The scammer calls and um, people listening to this say, oh, I know this. But we need to talk to both our children and our parents who may not know this. So first of all, the IRS never initiates a call or a text, or an email. So as soon as you get that call, you hang up, right? Hang up, delete the email, delete the text, forget it. Okay, so you get an, let's say you get an email from something purporting to be the IRS. Should you report that you got this email? I would suggest that you do report it to the Internal Revenue Service. They have an address that uh, that you need to forward it to. It's like something like irsfishing.gov. Something, Something like, like that, that right? Yeah. Okay. And, and the important thing is report it. You know, you may say, oh, that's just another thing. It's they don't. Sometimes, though, what really happens and is very important is that you might give the IRS something that could represent the missing piece of the puzzle. You never know. Mm, that's so therefore, where you have an opportunity to help, you're not only helping yourself, but you're helping the IRS and you're helping all other taxpayers if that can give them a better handle on what the problem is. If you were affected by the Equifax um, data breach and you froze your credit, does that preclude someone from filing a return on your behalf no, or it not? Doesn't. So don't misconstrue the idea that you actually took action, froze your credit. Someone could actually file a return on your behalf still. They could. Okay. They could. So the only way around that is to file early. File early, 
unfortunately for many people, the bad guys have already filed. So you need to be looking for those red flags and take them seriously. Okay, what are the red flags? Well, number one, you attempt to file your return and you're blocked. Okay, that's not even a red flag. That's like a screaming siren red flag, like emergency. Flashing red light. Yeah, exactly. Then you're waiting for your refund. It never shows. You call the IRS. You finally get through, which is not so easy since we've had cutbacks and attrition at the IRS. And everyone is trying to answer phone calls about the new tax law that has confused everyone. Mm. But you get through, you explain the situation, they get back to you and say, but we already sent you your refund. That's a problem. Mm. Or the third one, which is a bit more subtle, equally as dangerous, is you get a notification from the IRS that you have woefully underreported your income because unbeknownst to you, someone using your social security number has gotten a job and the income is being reported to the IRS by way of your social security number. What? So you get a deficiency notice. Wow. Not unheard of, not the most common, but very disturbing. I'll say. You say there's a, a W2, W9 scam that is going on right now. Can you talk about that? Well, the scam, and it's usually directed at companies, normally at the HR department of a company, and that's where someone gets an email, they think it's from a superior within the organization asking them for the backup information on W-2 forms uh, with which they dutifully comply. And then they run into that specific person in the hallway or somewhere uh, in the headquarters and they go, by the way, did you get the information I sent you? And the response is, what information that you sent me? And, and I've worked with a lot of companies where there are a lot of very freaked out employees uh, whose information had been exposed because someone fell for it. So the number one rule of thumb, if you get an email from someone within your organization telling them they need you to provide them with backup information for W-2 forms, call them. Make sure. It's make sure that's critically right. important to make sure. If you are somebody who's a gig economy person, and you score a deal. I'm a graphic designer. You know, Adam hires me to re to redo his website, and Adam's bookkeeper sends me an email and says, uh, "Okay, send me uh, your send me a W nine form." Right? Should I not do that via email? You should never ever send sensitive information by way of email. Ever. Ever. Don't send it via email because why? Let's just let, so walk me through what happens. Sending it through my Gmail account, is it because my Gmail is not secure or because someone can intercept an email or what? Emails can be intercepted and accounts, though becoming more secure, doesn't mean they're completely secure. You also don't know if, if the person you're sending it to, even if it's a legitimate situation, hasn't had a compromise on their computer or their mobile device. Uh, so yeah. as a result... It's always better to be more careful, although I had an incident not too long ago. A friend of mine said, so I Federal Expressed uh, my information to my accountant. Mm -hmm. It arrived at my accountant's office. They noticed that the, the envelope had been altered. Oh, no. And someone had actually gotten it because someone was looking for any, like, Federal Express package that was being sent uh, to an accounting firm. Because you never know, it might have that wonderful information in there you need in order to commit a fraud. Okay, so what do you do? You got to send your stuff to your accountant. Let's say your accountant's not in your hometown. What what should we do? Well, I still think that that you should 
Federal Express it or Express Mail it or whatever. It's it's certainly more safer than than most ways. In yeah. the alternative, you could possibly call your accountant and provide information, but they still need the form. Right. So the best way to do it, or here's another one, that you could fax it, but you just have to make sure that there is someone standing by the fax machine that you trust and that your accountant confirms to you it has been received by way of fax. So wait a second. So a fax is safer than an email with a, an attachment? A fax is definitely safer than an email. Mark, did you know that? I didn't know that. If you're using encrypted email mm-hmm. with where there are keys and with both sides know that it's sensitive, and a lot of people find that extremely cumbersome, although, again, it's the whole argument of uh, convenience versus security. Yeah. Uh, when you're dealing with information as sensitive as financial information and social security numbers, everything that you can possibly do to protect it, you should do, including, if possible, I'm getting in my car, I'm getting in a cab, I'm coming over, I'm giving you the information. Oh, what a drag. So mad about this. Okay, social security cards, Yes. which you never should carry around with you, have Correct. this very important information. In the past, a Medicare card, your ID was your social. That's changing this year? It is changing, but think about the fact of how many tens of millions of us, and I'm one of the us, Tens of millions of us are wandering around with these cards that have Social Security number plus a letter. Now, that's brilliant masking. Yeah. Uh, the one in 26 chance of figuring that one out. There you go. So <laughs> what I suggest to people is uh, until you get the new card, uh, take your card, make a copy, redact most of the numbers out, and on the back, put an emergency contact person with a phone number. Okay. And and if you know you're going to a facility where, for whatever reason, you absolutely need to have your card with you, then only on that day take it with you. Right. But any other day, take this copy of, of, of your card with redacted numbers, perhaps, again, all but one or two, with your emergency contact on the back, so that in the event that you faint or you're in an accident and you're unconscious, that at least when they get their hands on your wallet and your card they're going to have an emergency contact person and they're going to be able to see that it it is a copy of the real card. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Adam Levin in just a minute. Just want to take a moment here to start thinking about your taxes in a different way. How are your taxes on your investment accounts? Don't know? Well, that's where our sponsor, Betterment, comes into the picture. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor. And one thing Betterment does really well, they've got tax-saving strategies to help increase your after-tax returns. I mean, think about it. When you invest outside of a retirement account, you've got to pay attention to this. Betterment designs its program to lower taxes and increase your returns. And of course, they've got great technology that helps make investing easier because tracking your investments shouldn't be confusing or frustrating. So check out Betterment services at betterment.com slash better off. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to our interview with Adam Levin. There are also scams that are taking place with Medicare and Social Security. So, I mean, I always just think about how... If my mom, who is in her late 70s, got a call, 
I think that she said, says, you know, hello, I'm from, you know, the Medicare. Da, da, da. I'm sure she would just say anything. So is this the same as the IRS in that Medicare is not calling you for anything? Well, they're certainly not going to be calling you to verify uh, personal identifiable information or to authenticate information. And I think that's the most important rule of thumb in this area is never authenticate your, to yourself to someone who contacts you. Okay. If you initiate the conversation, if you were to call, uh, let's say, the folks at Medicare or the Social Security Administration, they don't know who you are. So if they ask you to uh, to validate yourself, to authenticate yourself, that's not unreasonable. Then you just have to decide if you're comfortable enough authenticating yourself. But scammers will try everything, including when you look at your phone, the caller ID will make you feel like it's a government agency or somebody official contacting you for information mm. because they're great at spoofing, just like they can spoof email and they're getting better and better at it and websites, they can also spoof caller ID. So unfortunately, never trust, always verify, always be on the alert and know that this is a real asset. Your personal identifiable information is an asset that someone can definitely use against you. And what they're counting on is that each and every one, one of us has a day job, whether it's raising a family, running a company, owning a company, being engaged in philanthropic activities or community, community activities. We're busy and we're distracted. But to hackers and scammers, we are their day job. That's unbelievable. When you were on last time, you came and you told me about child ID theft. And I found this to be interesting because since you've been um, here, we had a guy who called up and said that his two-year-old's social was all of a sudden compromised. And he found out in a weird way. It was in the whole Equifax rigmarole, but like he was just typing in rant, you know, his and his wife's and the kids and just wanted to see what came up. And he found that his two-year-old had a credit file. Yes. This... He was shocked. He goes, how did that happen? Didn't apply for anything. Where would they have gotten that information? Well, they could have gotten it from any one of a number of breaches. They also could have gotten it from uh, the, someone uh, taking Social Security numbers out of a hospital, for instance, because mm -hmm. children normally get them while they're right, there or, right. or close to the time. But again, there are there between uh, the information that's sold on the dark web and all of the breaches and all of the uh, social networking oversharing that goes on that enables hackers and scammers to fish you and and sometimes you'll answer a phone call and and not realize that it wasn't official or you'll respond to an email or something and somehow your child's social security information will be part of the information that you gave up or has been given up as a result of these breaches and acts and it's out there and to an identity thief there is nothing more delicious than a child's social security number because it's clean pristine pristine and they can create whatever they want it's like the old the old line about we created it and then destroyed it well the truth of the matter is that's what they do with credit files adam what what is it going to take for us to get a better grip on all of this information um, i i asked another security expert why is it that the the position is not that every single file is frozen until it is unfrozen. Why shouldn't the first position be you start with frozen credit and you must unfreeze it to actually get credit? How long will it take to get to something like that? We can't seem to get Congress to agree on the day of the week. <laughs> so therefore, the concept of them, 
<laughs> you know, I saw Senator Warren's bill, which I thought was great about, you know, permanent credit freezes. And, and the truth of the matter is, if you look at it from an economic standpoint, everybody wins with frozen credit. Everybody. And again, it's not the silver bullet because you can still be a victim of medical and tax and child in many other ways. Um, criminal identity theft, they can still grab your existing accounts. But when it comes to new account creation, uh, freezing is is the best thing we got at the moment. But people also have to remember, if you freeze, you can't just freeze one, you have to freeze all three. And when, and then now the fourth horseman, uh, this Innovus. Innovus, which is lurking around. And, and there are something like also 400 different specialty uh, credit reporting entities also out there. But to the economy, think of the billions of dollars that's lost. Think of the economic dislocation that occurs with, with consumers, not to mention emotional dislocation, reputational damage, and, and, and how businesses are out significantly as a result of this. So we all lose. We all lose. Government loses when you talk about fraudulent tax. So a cost of a freeze is minuscule to a credit reporting agency. And what they could do is say to business, look, we're going to do this, but we're going to charge businesses just a teeny bit more when you want to pull someone's credit than we normally do. And the business obviously will turn around and pass it out to consumers, but it will again be infinitesimal. But think of the billions that could be saved, because this is all part of a cooperative, collaborative effort. Government has failed. Business has failed. Consumers have a shared responsibility now to protection of our data. Didn't ask for it. Right. Didn't want it. Right. Oftentimes don't even know how to do it. But we are put in the situation where we have to do it. And it's time for everybody to band together and finally get this done and having a universal credit freeze mechanism that starts with the default position that it's all frozen and we go on from there is a heck of a lot smarter situation than we have now. I can't uh, let you go without asking you something because you are the former director of the New Jersey Division of Consumer Affairs. And uh, you have a relationship with Senator Elizabeth Warren that predates her being in the Senate because you know her from old days. And my question to you is, tell me about the CFPB under Mick Mulvaney and uh, the defanging of this organization. What can we do to fight this? The only thing we can do is really put pressure on the Congress. We fought so hard to get a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. We finally got one under Richard Cordray. It was activist. It was exciting. It was doing important things. It attacked the whole issue of the arbitration clause. It was trying to bring some kind of sanity and order to payday lending. It looked into credit reporting agency abuses and the like. It was making real progress. And these guys come along under the guise of, we need to help business. We need to make sure that business isn't overburdened. We're here for the small business. But what I find interesting is the real role of the CFPB, in addition to protecting consumers, is to protecting legitimate business against predators. Because we all lose when predators are out in the marketplace and under the guise of protecting the little guy in the business community, what they're really only trying to do is make it a lot easier on the big guy. And a lot of the big guys have been taking liberties with consumers for years. 
And unfortunately, this agency has, it, it is in the process of being transformed from a watchdog into a lapdog. And that's heartbreaking. Have you heard that that the CFPB has dropped the its pursuit of Equifax? Well, from all outward appearances, you sure get the feeling it's dropped it. We know that a number of members of the United States Senate have actually launched an inquiry into what is it doing. Now, the response that we've heard so far from Mr. Mulvaney and his gang is that, well, the FTC is looking into it, that the attorneys general of every state, they're looking into it, that there are 240 class action lawsuits in progress. And are we piling on? And the answer is no. Well, with We're the not F- is the FTC FTC is the oversight body of Equifax? Is that right? Well, it is and it isn't because the CFPB has authority when it comes to credit reporting agencies. So, and the theory was they were supposed to work together in situations like this. And the CFPB has the the ability to actually deal with individual cases as well as looking at a macro situation. The FTC is more focused on a macro situation. And again, the FTC has the portfolio when it comes to the issue of did a business violate the law by failing to protect consumer privacy? The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> How are they still in business? That, it's like mind-blowing to me. Adam Levin, we began the show and you said your best financial decision was that you hired someone to manage your money. So what is your worst financial decision? My worst financial decision was believing that I could figure out the stock market. <laughs> mm, there you go. I think, <laughs> you know what? The first step is admitting you have a problem. As a matter of fact, I can be a useful guide for everyone. Yes. Do, do like Whenever you have a feeling you're going to be the contraindicator, we should bet against it. The minute I buy a put, I can turn the market. There you go. It's if called I buy the, a call, I can turn. I've managed to do so successfully. It's the Levin put. It's like the Bernanke put and the Greenspan put. And, the you know, it's a perfect thing. It's Rem- great. Remember when they used to have the, the Greenspan uh, briefcase watch? Sure. The, the fatter the briefcase, the more that they had an indication something was going to happen. Well, in in my case, there should there should be the Levin uh, option report. As soon as as soon as you buy it, we do the opposite. Completely. Adam Levin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks an awful lot for inviting me. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. Remember, we love to get on the air with you. We like to hear about what's going on in your financial life. Field your questions. You can email us, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Two chances to get on the air. Tuesdays, the bonus call. Thursdays, today, we drop our listener question after the big interview. So love to have you on. So give us a holler. It would be great. Right now, we're talking to Heather. She's calling from Berkeley, California. Welcome, Heather. What can we do for you? Hi, Jill. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm curious about backdoor Roth IRAs. Oh, they are fun. <laughs> I love um, them. Yeah, I'm, I think I need to do one, but I was looking into it, and it seems too easy. Like, I'm trying to make sure I'm not missing some catch here. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I'm... Uh, uh, I have the, the good problem, I suppose, is being uh, my income level just pushed me over uh, the Roth limit. And mm-hmm. so, uh, but I'm 29, so I, I'd like the, the time for uh, tax free growth. So I was looking into, like, could I still do a Roth? And it sounds like I could just make it traditional and then t- 
turn into a Roth. Yeah. And that's and that's it. It's super cool. Do you have any other IRA accounts that are floating around? Um, I have uh, an existing Roth that I had previously been putting into, and then last year I was halfway through the phase out, so I have six hundred dollars in a traditional IRA. And I know that's a bit of a catch, so I was going to yeah. put that into my um, employer four hundred one k. Oh, good. Okay. Get rid of it. And then, yeah, if you can do that, that would have Roth. Yeah, that would be better because. Um, so it's sort of a complicated thing. Yes, in essence, the question you're answering asking is yes, this is a great idea. There is a for everyone else listening, there is a little bit of a weirdness if you have multiple IRA accounts because there are there's this really weird rule which is I don't even know if I should go into this whole thing. Just know that there's a weird aggregation rule that the IRS says that when you have multiple pre-tax IRAs, they will all be treated as one account when they determine the tax consequences of any distribution. So just know for everyone listening, if you've got six different IRA accounts and you're thinking about a backdoor Roth, hold on, don't do anything because there's a few extra steps you have to consider. Okay. Now, let's get back to you, Heather. Um, You are only going to end up having this one account. You're going to convert it, and then you're going to have, poof, a beautiful Roth IRA going forward. And I guess the other question is, do you think you'll be able to do it just on a cash flow basis, you know, for a, a number of years? Um, typically, like luckily it works out that our employee stock purchase plan happens right before April 15th. So I usually just cash those out and then drop them into the IRA. Okay, great. The only other thing that I would just remind you of is like such a pain in the neck is that the documentation here I think is going to be very important. So make sure that you know that you've got your documentation and you've got the whole process in place because... I don't know about you, but I have been thinking for the last 20 years, you're too young because this would mean when you were in grade school, I've been thinking for the last 20 years that the Roth itself is too good to be true. So I really encourage as many people as possible to do this. And because I think that it's too good to be true, it also makes me think that it's going to somehow disappear in the future and that we're all going to need very good documentation that we have proof, especially if you've done the backdoor Roth. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to be permitted in the future, but I think as long as it's available to you, do it. I really think it's a great idea for you. Okay, cool. All right. Don't go nutty with your investments. Just keep saving and uh, give us a call back if you have any questions. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. Good luck. Thanks again. Well, thanks so much for listening to the program. Thanks to our guest, Adam Levin, and our caller, Heather. Remember, if you want to get on the air with us, just shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And you can download the show and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or even just go to the website, jillonmoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. We're distributed by Cadence 13. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. And as always, we are produced by the best executive producer in the world, Mark Talercio.